Albert Einstein, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, John F. Kennedy, Tony Robbins, Michael Phelps, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. What else do they have in common? Well, they all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that, do you? You know what you hear even less about? The successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm an attorney, not a doctor, a lifelong student, not a coach. I'm also the creator of Cortography, a patent-pending system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your superpowers, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest superpowers. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka. Welcome to Episode 51 of ADHD for Smartass Women. Today, I'm going to do something a little different. I wanted to let you know that my first article for Attitude, it's the leading media network for parents and adults living with ADHD and for professionals working in the field of ADHD. It's excellent, by the way. Anyway, my first article for Attitude went live on Monday, and since it starts and ends with me talking about my 17-year-old ADHD son, Marcus, I asked him to be my guest today. Now, if you want a real ADHD underdog success story, I think you might like this one. Without giving too much away, Marcus has finally found the right fit in high schools and just in the nick of time, his senior year. And he got some great news a couple of days ago that he's going to share with us. And honestly, that great news is probably the only reason he was willing to come on our podcast today. So anyway, I want to start by sharing the piece that I wrote for Attitude. The link will also be in the bio. They will say in the bio. I think it should be in the resources. Okay, so I'm going to read the article. When my son Marcus was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 12, I met with a psychologist to learn more about it. Instead of answering my question, she told me to reduce my very ambitious son's expectations so we wouldn't be disappointed in life. Who would ever tell a child that? Not me. Instead, I fired her. Eight months later, I received the same diagnosis. That's when it dawned on me that had my mother taken the same bad advice, I would have never graduated from college, completed law school, or received a second graduate degree. That's also when I made it my mission to change the somber conversation around ADHD. I've long subscribed to the theory that whether we think we can or think we can't, we're right. I choose to believe that I can. Do I have weaknesses? I do. I'm never on time for anything that's not business-related. My husband will affirm that that means my business, not his. I'm incapable of washing a load of laundry just once. The smoke alarm is the only reason my house hasn't burned to the ground. And I cannot tell a linear story to save my life or yours. But the flip side to my ADHD weaknesses are my great strengths. 
I'm not hyperactive, just otherworldly energetic. I'm not distractible, just incessantly curious. And yes, I'm impulsive. But isn't it Dr. Ned Hallowell himself who posits that creativity is simply impulsivity gone right? The truth is that I felt different my entire life. I've always been too much. Too chatty. As a child, they called me the Burlingame Blab after my hometown, and because I'd share family secrets to anyone who'd listen. Too intent on challenging the status quo, I proposed to my husband by flying a plane over Singing Beach, Massachusetts. Too ambitious, I go big or I go home. Too willing to say exactly what's on my mind, like the time I told my kindergarten teacher that blue was a better color than the puke green she was wearing. Even so, I'd always done well in school, had never been fired from a job, counted my one and only marriage among my greatest achievements, and I've always found clutter anxiety-producing. Could I really have ADHD? Thinking through my diagnosis more carefully, I made an important connection. My personal drive is a form of hyperactivity, and my interpersonal intuition is the reason I can walk into a room and read it even before anyone has uttered a word. These two ADHD traits have explained my entire life and confirmed for me that, by golly, I have ADHD. That's also when I decided to start a podcast for smart women to help them connect and understand their brilliant, creative ADHD brains. What better way to find my people than by letting them know that I am their people? But first, I had to educate myself on all things ADHD, so I read everything I could find from experts who have ADHD themselves, people like Ned Hallowell, John Rady, Kathleen Nadeau, psychotherapist and author Tom Hartman, Patricia Quinn, author Linda Rogley. After all, if I wanted to learn how to surf, wouldn't I take lessons from a surfer who rides the waves daily, has experience with wipeouts, and has endured point break? Someone who has actually spent time on a board? In our community of women with ADHD, we have professors, doctors, lawyers, and entrepreneurs. We have women who manage budgets in the billions, with a B, and women who don't but now know that they can. What these women have in common is the shared belief that they are successful because of their ADHD, not in spite of it. They're in the right environment, working in an area that takes advantage of their natural strengths and interests. These women are action-oriented. They don't think about what they can't do or what they wish they could do. They go out and do it. I have never met a person with ADHD who wasn't truly brilliant at something. That includes my son, Marcus, who has been my greatest teacher. This fall, Marcus started his first semester as a senior in his third high school, the school where he's finally cracked his learning code. At his new school, he's earning a 3.7 GPA, playing varsity basketball, discovering a love for economics, and applying to colleges. Marcus taught me that creative ADHD brains need more structure, not less. In the right school, environment, with teachers who believe in him, our brains thrive on encouragement and praise and wither under criticism. My son's sky is limitless. Marcus didn't need his expectations lowered. He needed them raised, 
Once he confirmed that his teachers cared about him personally and knew how smart and capable he really was, hope took hold. Hope is the bridge to our success. It fuels our motivation, it drives our determination, and it gives us the confidence to soar. I am proud to be a peddler of hope. So here we are. Welcome, Marcus. Wait, am I supposed to come in there? Yeah, you're supposed to come in there. Uh, It's okay. Just say hi. Hi. (laughs) I know that um, you're a young man of very few words, so I'm really kind of surprised that you agreed to speak with me, so thank you for that. And I haven't told you this, but I was asked to write an article for Attitude, which is, I believe it's the number one site and magazine for people with ADHD. And just so you know, you're a big part of that article, which I just read to our listeners. So I'll let you, uh, I'll let you read it afterwards. So what I wanted to know, Marcus, is I wanted to talk to you about your high school experience. And I'm going to lead you along because we know that there have been, there were three high schools, right? Mm -hmm. Throughout, I mean, you went to three different high schools? Yeah. Okay. Tell me your experience about high school number one. Well, high school number one was a big public high school in the largest city in our area. And I think that we had about 3,000 kids, or about 2,000 when I was there, and I think they're reaching about 3,000 now. And the average class size was about 26, maybe even larger. I remember my PE class had 94 kids. Oh, my gosh. So not a lot of one-on-one attention. I met one really good teacher there for my English class, which was through the ArtQuest program. But the majority of the teachers were on tenor or tenure. Tenure, yeah. Yeah, and had been there from almost 10 to 15 or more years. So they didn't really care because their job was secured. So you would usually just get put in a class with 35 other kids and do nothing the whole day. And so you decided to join that high school. Why? Um, I got into the ArtQuest program as a drummer for the symphonic band which normally was split up into two bands, the freshman band and then the upperclassmen slash sophomore band. But the year I came, they lost like $40,000 in funding for that specific program. And they cut the freshman band because of lack of students. And they all joined the upperclassmen band. So we had 20 or about 15 to 20 drummers for four to five parts a song. So you usually ended up playing the tambourine or <laughs> the the cymbals or the crash or snare just once or twice a year. So the band part fizzled out, which is what you were really interested in, right? Because you love mm-hmm. music. Yeah. What about the education? Was that um, not very good? Or? It, I wouldn't say it was the worst public school education. I would just thought that they were so they had so many students and so many teachers that it was like a lucky draw so having so many friends that still go there it's kind of like one year you could get five good teachers out of your six classes and the next year you could get zero out of your six um and when i went there my freshman year i got one out of my six and my band teacher wasn't bad but he was just overworked and had too many students to take on Mm -hmm. So tell me about the teacher that you said was really good, that really 
I mean, she had a big impact, do you think, on you? Yeah. So my English teacher was um, part of the ArtQuest program. And I, she had been there for, I think, 15 years. Um, and she taught um, English 1. And her whole curriculum around English 1 was to make English more of a project-based um, learning what you want to learn about English in a different way. Mm-hmm. So instead of having like one book that everyone had to read and you had to do a certain project on it, she often just would have us read multiple books or read one book and then you could decide how you wanted to present your final project. So she was the first one that really showed me you could use another or a different type of media or art and incorporate it into common English. So mm-hmm. from I remember from my freshman year, the first project I ever did is I read, I, for, I don't remember the name, I think it was Hip Hop throughout the years or something like that by a well-known hip hop writer. And it basically described the roots and fruition or like, like how hip hop, yeah, how hip hop came to be. And it went from about 1965, I think, to all the way to modern day music, which at that point of the book being written, I think was about 2010. And she let me read that book and do a project based on writing and analyzing that and picking specific parts of the book and specific parts that I liked and explaining how they were important to the modern day and how they had an impact on this like hip hop we hear today. And then what was, didn't she have you do a project as well? Yeah. So she had us, the project was that I wrote about like, I think I wrote like 10 different articles on different people in the book. But then later in the year, she also had us do another project on Romeo and Juliet, and my final project was a hip hop song, which I think I got, which was one of my highest grades of the year, was on that final project. And so, why do you think that you did so well in her class? Um, she didn't really. She was one of the few teachers, I think, not just in public school, but in my whole entire life, that cared more about the student being successful than follow the rules kind of teacher. Mm -hmm. So technically, she was supposed to stick to a curriculum that said we read like these six books and did this. I think she had she had really cared about like kids and worked wanted to work with kids for a long time and had been working with them for a long time. So she wanted to see each student at least succeed in her classroom, if not in other classes. And did she really in teaching that way? Do you feel like she taught you how to write much better than had you had to read all these books you didn't care about and then write about them. Yeah, because because when you when you read a when you read a book that you want to read or even like a an article you want to read and you write about it, you're much more likely to understand what you read and cite evidence more properly and have more facts as well when you read a book and skim through it and it's like a like a Romeo and Juliet or like a really big book, it's really hard to take those points uh, or to have like a super vocal point if you don't have anything to back it up on. Mm -hmm. So interest is really important Mm -hmm. in allowing you to learn. Yeah. Okay. So you decided to leave high school one because? Um, It's just that the band program had no funding. And the reason, the original reason I came there was not a vital reason to stay or a good reason to stay. And on top of that, it was just too big of a school and too many kids to really have any chance of being seen. And you knew at that point that that was important for you. Yeah, just I think it's important for, I mean, most kids in general, and I think also even more important for most 
guys in high school to feel like they can have like a teacher they can rely on to talk to. Okay. Tell us about then you chose high school number two. You kind of chose it. Actually, you were going to go to high school number three, but then we came to you and said, wait a minute, we think high school two is exactly what you're looking for. Yeah. So So I went to high school number two, um, which was a private, non-religion, just normal private affiliated or non-affiliated school. And it was a startup. And it was also in uh, Santa Rosa in a little bit different area, but it was still in the same city. And the school basically promised that they would teach to the student in a, each student a unique way and show them how they could they could alter curriculum and learn any which way they wanted to. And it was so very they would teach small. the interest. Yeah, I think, and it was very very different than Santa Rosa. It had only twenty something kids the first year it started, and almost the same amount of almost like a teacher to every four kids. And so, why did you decide? to take a shot there? I just, I think that they were really convincing in the way they presented the school. And with modern, just with technology and everything going on in the world, I think a lot of people thought, think that the school for the future would have been a school like that, but it would have had to been a school like that that was executed properly. Okay. So what happened at high school too? So I went to high school number two for two years. And then the first year, um, my sophomore year, it was okay. There were some glaring problems, but it was its first year becoming a school. So a lot of the problems you would assume would happen in any company or anything starting brand new. Um, And overall, I thought the teachers were pretty good. And though they lacked organization and the materials were kind of everywhere, there wasn't, it wasn't so bad that you didn't think it would be able to be changed. And then, so I stayed there um, my second year Mm -hmm. and uh, just like a lot of the teachers uh, were not as strong as the year before. But on the other hand, there was one teacher who was my history teacher, who was a really good teacher. And I think in my whole entire high school career, my highest grade ever received was in his class. He was really good at balancing doing your own different kind of curriculum, but also maintaining like a path so that you're not completely lost. But overall- So he was he was really flexible, yeah. but in the same vein, he had a lot of structure. Mm-hmm. You could tell that he had taught at other schools that had more structure, but understood how to be flexible. Mm-hmm. But overall, the teachers were not as strong. The curriculum was a pretty- huge mess. Uh, The juniors, which I was a junior at that point, didn't even have their own curriculum because they didn't think there was enough to make one. Okay. So you were pretty frustrated by your junior year. Yeah. You stopped doing your homework, right? Well, we don't really, we, the the school is over or advertise themselves as a school with no homework Mm -hmm. or limited homework. So there wasn't a lot to do in the first place. And the homework that there was, was so unorganized that none of us would ever do it. Mm -hmm. And the majority of it was just a mess. So I remember that you spent your junior year not doing the homework that you were supposed to do. And you were working on a lot of music production and creating raps and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So I, I mean, I started, I started getting into music, I think as a freshman. And as a sophomore, I'd kind of put it away. Um, And then as a junior, I got really into it again. One of my really good friends from Santa Rosa started, joined with me. And uh, I basically put all my time into recording music. 
and thought that I might if they're not going to teach well at the school, I might as well put myself into something else that's somewhat useful or useful to me. My recollection was that you were really frustrated with the school. They didn't know what to do with you. I know that I went to them a couple times and they suggested that you graduate early mm. and that you go to the JC. I know, I think you told me that at one point the school counselor came to you and talked to you about being an HVAC technician. Yeah, because junior year is often the normal year to start looking at what you want to do after high school. And I did not have really any idea what I wanted to do, but she presented the opportunity my junior year to double up on my, take two English classes and two history classes, one at the JC and one at the school for both. And I'd graduate, I think it was in early December, and then just go become a full-time JC student. Mm -hmm. But her other backup, her other option, she thought that I'd make a good HVAC specialist, mm -hmm. which is a really good paying job if you never had the opportunity to go to school. But considering it was a private school, the idea of going to become an HVAC specialist was kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Not that there's anything at all wrong with being an HVAC technician, but clearly that wasn't where your interest lay, right? Yeah, and and it's a job where you you can make a lot of money doing it, but it's really hard work and it could be 40 years before you're even at the top of your field. So you were really frustrated and my understanding is you you knew that you were much smarter than what you could show on paper, but you didn't know how to show it in the way that these two schools, high school 1 and 2, wanted you to show it. Mm, yeah. And so had you kind of given up and thought that, I guess I can't go to, well, and I have to tell you, the director of the school told me that some kids are just not college material. And the implication was that you weren't. And so I don't know if you yeah. got that message as well. Well, I remember, I, I, she, I think indirectly told me that for the whole junior year, um, because the majority of what career options they thought I had were either construction or something just in the field of like hard labor work that's really hard. Mm -hmm. uh, my my initial plan or my idea of what I wanted to do after was either pursue music uh, full time and see where that led, or I was just gonna find a job and uh, start working as young as I could. But I mean, you you were frustrated with the whole school system, and you really did you think that I'm just not cut out for this? Yeah, I I, I think I I. Th think that I rationalized in my brain that college wasn't something I was supposed to do. And I think there is people in the world that don't need college that are just so passionate about one thing and they just will work it until it is successful. But I think the idea that you should just write off students completely for college is really not right. Yeah, I would agree. So anyway, what happened was then, just so you know, people that are listening know, your dad and I were so tired of hearing about how miserable you were that we just came to you, I think it was in late April, and said, you know what, just pick a school, any school. We just want you to be happy. We want your senior year to be something that you know, you're having fun. We want to be able to see you play basketball because I know that was always something that you were really passionate about. So you picked school number three. Yeah, so for my um, senior year, I transferred to school number three. It wasn't as big of a, a jump considering that I'd 
gone to elementary school with a lot of the kids there. So socially, it was an easy way to go back to a big school without having to worry about knowing people. So this school is much more traditional, private, and it's closer to our house, closer to where we live. And it's much more, you know, academics, but sports teams, clubs, activities, like it's very, it's a small private school, but small in the sense that it still has 200 plus kids. So I I transferred there for my senior year and that's when I first started flirting with the idea of going to a four-year or at least trying to apply for a four-year. Oh, wait a minute. We should back up though. So between your junior and starting your senior year, you went for the summer and lived with your godfather and namesake, Marcus, in Munich. Yeah. So um, after school ended, I think about late June, I... um, left without anyone else, just me. And I went to Germany to live with my uncle Marcus, who lives in uh, München. And uh, so I went to Germany. I met my cousins in Italy. Um, and I also went to Paris. Uh, and I, I think in in my whole entire life I've lived, which is a short span, but it's probably the most meaningful thing I've ever done and most eye-opening thing I've ever done. It really woke me up to how much there is to offer, not just in the U.S., but there's so many other countries that are so unique and interesting and fascinating. And I think it sparked like my interest for traveling. But I think when I was in Europe, that's when I first started thinking about a four-year. I actually originally was looking at going to applying to a school in Paris because after I went to Paris for, I think, about five days or four days... It was my favorite city I've ever seen or visited. It was like out of a movie. So I was looking at schools in Paris. I also looked at the Berlin School of Business or one of those and a couple of schools like the Genova College in Genova, Italy. Genoa? Yeah, but Genova is the name of the college. Oh, okay. The, the Italian has a V. Okay. And so I think uh, uh, that was one of the biggest things that I've done in my life, most influential things. And it was really interesting because my uncle Marcus uh, met my parents by coming from Germany to Petaluma. Mm-hmm. And he, he was 15. Yeah. And he was 15. So a little bit younger, but he lived with them as a foreign exchange student, I think for five months, right mom, or a little less. Um, I think it was about four months. So he lived with them for about four months and he thought that was one of the most eye-opening experiences of his life. And it's really interesting that going the opposite way, going from the U.S. to uh, Germany really did the same thing to me. Mm -hmm. But I still at that point don't think I had any idea that I would even apply to a four-year in the U.S. I was only focused on looking at ones in Europe. And was that because you didn't think you'd get into a four-year in the U.S. just given, you know, your history? Yeah, just really hard to get into U.S. schools. and in. International students, if you're, you're an international student, when you apply for a school in Paris, so there's usually less and they w- want to take students from more students from the U.S. just so that their schools have more like, you know, foreign exchange students in college. And most of them have an, a program in English, which is usually like a degree in Italian, but for English student speaking students, and they want to fill those spots so that that degree doesn't have Mm -hmm. classes with no one in them. Okay. So going to um, Europe, 
you know, being afforded that opportunity, mm-hmm. that really opened your eyes to yeah. a lot of possibilities. And you kind of thought, well, maybe I should at least look at four years because. Yeah. So um, I, st- I still think at, at that point, I was only looking at four years in Europe still. Okay. Okay. So then you went to high school three and you started there in August. And how's that going? Oh uh, yeah, so I started there in August. Since since uh, this school was an actual college preparatory that ran correctly, I think every single student, except for maybe three or four outliers a class, is attending a four year or will be attending or is planning to attend a four year when they leave high school. So immediately being thrown into there, everyone was getting ready to go to college. So I started uh, there in August, and. I realized that the structure there was really helping me be able to uh, work well and work smarter, not harder. And I noticed that my grades were doing really well. So I would say about mid-September, um, I came to my parents with the idea and told them that I was going to apply to four years. And we said, oh, crap, we need a break. At f- yeah, at first it was like an oh, crap reaction. <laughs> and, and partially mostly my fault because I had never presented the idea of going to a four-year, so they were less prepared for me to say I'd attend a four-year or would try to attend a four-year. And so I started looking at colleges, and they kind of ranged from everywhere you could think of. Some small schools, some big schools, some really big sports, Pac-12 schools, and other small liberal arts colleges. And since everyone was doing colleges there, I felt like I should do the same thing. So let me stop you for a second, Marcus. So environment was really important. Yeah, yeah. Because at school one and school two, both of those environments, even one, even though one of them was a private school, the majority of the students were either going to go to the JC or a craft school and that's, or a trade but school. But that's the juniors, right, in your class. Yeah. So all my friends were applying to colleges. And since my grades had taken a huge boost in the year... And most of my schools that I was applying to in January would accept those fine, those grades in that semester. My GPA got raised a lot, and I thought I had an actual chance to get into some schools. Mm-hmm. So that happened, and then a lot of so then I started writing essays. I think for one of the specific colleges I applied to earlier, I had to me and my mom. I think we worked on the essay every weekend. One of the essays for I think almost a month and a half. Well, and I think, you wrote the essay. Yeah, and then you edited it. I about, helped yeah. Which was and not I, easy because to squirrel you down and make you sit down so we could edit. Yeah, and <laughs> and I didn't mention that I didn't have a college counselor. So I was doing this completely independently. Yeah, I mean, what I want to mention, which I was so impressed with, again, interest and the ADHD brain, you didn't take an ACT prep course a year in advance like your sister did, right? Mm -hmm. You didn't want us to hire a college counselor. You did it all yourself. You really got into it. And I think you now know more about colleges than anyone I know, except for college counselors. Yeah, I I, I, really got into it. I think I know a lot lot about colleges and since I did it without a college counselor, I was the one that had to research and find schools that had majors I was interested in and had strong business programs and everything, um, location, which yeah. ended up making for a really interesting school list because I had schools in the most random states um, and I had schools in states and areas with 
a thousand people in the town and another area with four million people. So it was just a really big variety. You applied to a bunch of schools and you're still in the process of applying to a bunch of schools, but you also applied early decision yeah. and you had a dream school. What was your dream school? I, w- I would say I had two dream schools, and but two mm-hmm. different versions. Mm-hmm. My number one dream school that I never thought would be a real shot um, was NYU or New York University. So I applied early decision there. Yeah, for the Tisch School of Arts for the performance studies major, um, mm-hmm. which I think is a major with only 18 kids a class or something very mm-hmm. small like that. And then my second dream school, which was my more realistic one, was University of Oregon. But I was applying there later. Um, but I had a lot on my list. Um, so I applied to NYU early decision and I assumed that I would not get in or that they would waitlist me, but most likely get rejected. So I kind of chalked that up and threw it away. And we started, I think my, we started looking at other options that were more realistic. Yeah. And so what happened on Wednesday? Um, so actually on Thursday. Oh, sorry. <laughs> on Thursday, I opened the portal went to view my admissions decision and found out I had got into the Tisch School of Arts <laughs> for the class of 2024, early decision. Wow. Your sister goes there too, right? Mm-hmm. Same program too. Same program. So you guys are the first legacy, brother mm-hmm. and sister, but she did the traditional route, right? Yeah. She got really high ACT. She got really good grades. She worked her rear end off. And you went a different way. Mm -hmm. And so I want to know, why do you think you got in? I think there's three main reasons. I I think number one is that out of all the schools in the country that are really hard to get into, NYU is one of the many, one of the few that actually looks at the person as a whole and what they offer to the school, not just grade-wise. I think the second reason is they made me write a portfolio. Mm-hmm. So I wrote in a thousand word essay analyzing a music video by a Filipino rapper from the Bay Area um, named MB Nell. And basically I described the music video, what goes on in it. It involves the killing of basically a whole entire friend group until there's one Filipino kid left. And this is based in, I think, Stockton, because that's where he's from. So technically not the Bay Area. So I analyzed that. And then I also tied that into the model minority myth, which is a paper I did in my junior year too. And it's the myth that all Asian Americans um, are making more money than the average uh, than any other race in the country, which is not f- close to the truth. So there's a giant gap between East Asians and Southeast Asians. The highest paid races is Indian, um, Chinese, and then I think it's Korean. Filipino, right? Oh, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think it's, it's Korean. Korean. Filipino is like middle tier. Mm-hmm. So then you, if you look farther into it, you actually see that uh, Bhutanese, Burmese, and Laotian people mm-hmm. make the lowest amount of money of any subcategory of any race mm-hmm. in the U.S., And what's horrible about this too is that it's not documented. So if you're a kid, an Asian American kid growing up in a bad neighborhood, you'll never see that reflected on a TV. You'll only see these wealthy portrayals of Asian Americans or these nerdy portrayals like in the Big Bang Theory. Uh 
So I, uh, that that's one of the big problems going on too. And then the the second big problem is that since Asian Americans, there's this myth that they don't make or they make more money. A lot of elder people, especially Chinese Americans that live in New York, can't get the benefits they need because they get written off immediately because they're because um, they're Asian American and they want to give the benefits to someone who's not Asian American. And so then what, did you submit something else too that was part of your portfolio? Yeah. And then I submitted a, a song I made um, about the model minority myth, basically just to like emphasize my point even more um, and to show that I, I can write mm-hmm. about music well, but I can also make music well and give them two different things I can do well in one concentrated form of art. So yeah, I made a song too, and I think that really helped. And then I think the the third thing that really benefited me is I think that mm-hmm. my YNYU essay, which was their mandatory secondary essay on the Common App, was really strong specifically because I flipped a question. Um, instead of YNYU, I felt like the question reflected more why I would be a good fit for NYU, why they why I should be there, how I would benefit them. And I think overall, those, those three major things, mostly the, the supplementary essay and the portfolio really like showed me, showed that although I wasn't a high, high level high school student, I had a capability to express like my intelligence in a different way. Well, and I think you forgot probably the most important part, Marcus. I mean, clearly you're very creative. You have incredible musical talent, which, you know, spent your yeah. junior year honing <laughs> instead of focusing on school because that was your where your interest was. Mm-hmm. But you also submitted in your Common App, I think that essay was yeah. really important. Yeah, my Common App essay was very strong too. And what was that about? So my common app essay was about ADHD mm-hmm. and it was basically the, the prompt was what's one struggle you have um, overcame in your life or like what's one setback that you've had to fight. And, and I wrote about basically how my whole life people have always said that I'm lazy, I'm smart, but I'm super lazy. Mm-hmm. And I just wrote an essay basically showing that kids with ADHD were never really lazy. We just learn differently. And the way we learn isn't reflected in the modern school system. Yeah. What did this experience teach you? And when I say this experience, I guess I'm kind of talking about kind of your whole, you know, high school career. And then what happened at the end with, you know, getting this admission to NYU's Tisch program. I, I, I think the, the number one thing it's taught me and the number one thing that it could teach other people is that you, you're not, one year isn't going to reflect your whole entire like body of work, if that makes sense. Like just to other high school students, people that are like younger, maybe freshmen or sophomore, if you find something you're passionate about, that can mean a lot more to, I feel like a lot more to you and it will benefit you. And I think schools in general are starting to see that. And I think that if you if you find something you're passionate about and really express why it's important, that they'll understand the reason that you have struggled in other departments of school. Okay. Did it also teach you that there's no one way of getting to where you want to go? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. It taught me that you can get to the finish line of anything in in 500 different ways. And I think everybody has a different way of doing it. I, I don't think one person or I don't think multiple people can have the same exact path every single time and get the same result every single time. So I I, th- I think there's definitely different ways too, and, and I think that if you if you have a kid who's interested in something else, I mean yes, school is really important, but if he really is passionate about something, that's going to help him more in life than just being in an AP class, AP classes, and being the stereotypical like smart kid. Right. So you're what you're saying, I think, is that. Whatever they're passionate about and whatever they love, they've got to keep on that path because they know it and don't let the school system and teachers and even their parents dictate what it is that they should be doing next, that there are different ways to get to where you want to go. Yeah. And it kind of makes sense to me that a school like Tish, who attracts so many creatives, would want a kid like you and not a kid that necessarily takes a bunch of APs and 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 has 900 community service hours and And, but the thing is too there's nothing wrong with that with that no it's different ways to get into the same thing exactly so marcus you got into tish nyu because of your adhd i believe not in spite of it if you hadn't been really open and honest about adhd and how it presents for you and your story about how hard it was for you to figure out on your own, kind of how your ADHD brain learns, mm-hmm. I don't think you would have gotten in. Plus the fact that you are creative, you are the way you are because of your nonlinear ADHD brain, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So what you did by talking about your ADHD was you educated, in this case, the admissions people about, about ADHD and how it presents for yeah. you. And like mm-hmm. certainly in my podcast and in our Facebook group, I talk to a lot of women who are terrified that someone may discover that they have ADHD or their kids have ADHD. So they live within this cloak of shame. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? I mean, are you really open with your friends about your ADHD? Do you talk about it? Do you try and educate them about it? I I, I don't really think I try to educate people on ADHD as much. I'm, I don't, I'm very open with, I don't care that I have ADHD. I mean, I don't think it's, impacts like i th- i think it's a positive more than a negative in most of my life in the majority of my life i just think that if you're the more afraid you are of having adhd or the more afraid you are for people to find out the the more you're just going to put yourself in like an anxiety and and not want to do anything I think there's a lot of things that you do so much better with adhd that there's no reason not to be like happy or fine with it Yeah. Do you know that by the time a kid with ADHD is 12, they've heard 20,000 more negative messages than a child without ADHD? Mm -mm. But does that make sense to you? Yeah, probably. So what advice do you have for a teacher who has an ADHD student? Let him do what he's passionate about. I, I think the problem with the school system is that we care more about teaching from a book than teaching to what students really want to do. And I, I think that you can't have, if you're in a public school, it's impossible to have tailor it to one exact student. And if you have a big class, but I think that in all the schools I've been in, one thing teachers that have been impactful do is that they ask the students what they want to do. And the majority of students will always 
pick something more creative and more fun than doing just a basic piece of writing. How important is it, do you think, that a teacher really cares about an individual child and for each of their students really looks for what is that kid's strength? I, I think it's really important. I just think though it's un, there's an unfair advantage to to people like me because I've had the opportunity to go to schools where they can do that more. But I feel like if you come from an at risk area with violence and and teachers that are scared for their life, those are the kids that are going to end up not being able to succeed just because of where they came from. So I think there's still like a there's still a very big gap. So I think it's important, but it's really hard to do depending on where you live. Would you change your high school experience now looking back? I think when I was at my second school, I wanted to, but then looking back at it now, I don't because I think it really taught me grit and and being able to power through something and and prove the system wrong in a way. And I don't think if I'd gone to high school number three for four years, I would have even gotten into NYU because I think I would have been a stronger student grade-wise, but would have had less of a supplementary like life experience that you could talk about yeah i would have had a lot less to present music wise and everything else how do you think that you're different from your friends i think i'm just more creative than the normal kid i just really like doing stuff i always have enjoyed doing stuff the, the a different way than everyone else even even the way I did my college essays, I've um, all my friends had it proofread by thousands of teachers and, and and college counselors, and I think I've always just wanted to do it the opposite because they probably see a thousand essays a year edited by so many people that clearly just sound way too cookie cutter and and like an English teacher edited it. So I've always just wanted to be a person that challenges the status quo, challenges the normal. I think that's what makes me different. Oh no. Yeah. I wonder if that's genetic. But now I'm going to the I'm going to a college where everyone challenges the status quo. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So six months ago you were planning on attending the JC and you were trying to figure it out. You weren't planning on moving clear across the country and attending NYU. Things change really quickly. And so mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's a teen out there, this is the last question I'm going to have for you. If there's a teen out there who's listening to this podcast and they're where you were a year ago or even six months ago, you know, they know they're smart. They're so frustrated with school. What would you tell them? I mean, this is really cheesy, but it's a, it's a quote that one of the schools I apply or was applying, going to apply to has in their student center. And it's a quote that I think has a lot of meaning to me just because I mean, uh, just because of, I, I really love basketball too. Um, and Jimmy Valvano, who was the coach of NC State and led him to the most improbable NCAA championship for basketball ever. Uh, he died from cancer when he was about 44. And his most famous quote is, don't give up, don't you ever give up. And I think that embodies like what my attitude has been my whole life. I'm, I'm, I've always been able to find a way to succeed. It's just I've always had to work a little bit harder. But I think to, the, to those kids that are struggling, life is such a long period of time. 
And if you just look at it in a different way and you take it with a more positive attitude, you'll always you'll find a way to succeed. I love that. So it's grit. It all goes back to grit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that those of us with ADHD really have. I mean, a lot of times maybe we should be giving up, but we don't mm -hmm. give up. Somehow we just have the stick to itiveness and we just keep coming back, even yeah. for more, you know, even when there's problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. I just really appreciate your talking to me today. I, I still can't believe you did this. And after you leave, I'm going to ask your permission to play the song that, <laughs> to play a song that you wrote, performed, and recorded as part of your NYU application portfolio. You'll let me do that, right? Nobody's going to hear it except for the podcast. Cool listens to the podcast. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Marcus. Okay. I love you. Love you too. Bye. You know, after listening to what Marcus just said, I had some ahas. It's not that I haven't said these things before, like the first one. There really is no such thing as a failure. And I know I talk about this a lot, but when it's really staring you in the face and it involves your child, it really hits home. So yeah, there really is no such thing as failure. There are only lessons. And I am beyond grateful that my son at 17 realizes that while he's going through whatever new hell he might have to go through, we all do, right? That most of the time we can't see how it's all going to work out when we're in it, when we're looking forward. We can only see how it all worked out when we're looking backwards. And I know Steve Jobs said this often. Um, specifically, I remember seeing it in a Stanford um, commencement address. But it's so true. You know, we learn so much about ourselves and what we're capable of from the really difficult experiences. And when we're in them, we often don't even realize what a lesson it's going to be. Second thing, you know, I don't care who the kid is. Stop reducing expectations that you have of them. We really need to focus on kids' strengths, what they love. You know, my son is very, very good at math. He's always been really good at math. He's just one of those kids that could just calculate in his head from the time he was, you know, knee high. But he's always hated math, you know? He hated algebra. He hated uh, geometry. He hated trigonometry. He just couldn't see its use. It made no sense to him. I remember him constantly saying, when am I ever going to use that? And we knew he was smart in math, but because he didn't do well in it, we kind of wondered, is he really smart? And then we had him tested and we couldn't believe how smart he was in math. Now, his senior year, this fall, he took a class in economics and he absolutely loved it. He could finally use his gift of math in a way that made sense to him. You know, I think that as ADHD people, we are very practical, aren't we? If we don't understand why we have to learn something, we just can't learn it. Another thing, environment is so important to the ADHD brain. Who knew that it would be the Catholic school with tons of structure that would work best for Marcus and his brain? 
But then when you really think about it, it actually does make sense. You know, we have these nonlinear brains. So the school that provides the most linear structure, it kind of calms our brains down, right? It reduces anxiety. We know what to expect. You know, at the school he's at, there's an online portal. It lists his homework. It tracks his grades. It shows him the tests that are coming up. It helps him to organize his brain. And I swear he's on that portal many times a day just to make sure that he knows exactly where he is. You know, that was Marcus's biggest complaint about the two previous high schools, but especially high school number two. He never knew how he was doing or what was due because the organization was so lacking. There was no online portal. Beyond that, though, you know, St. Vincent's High School number three, it really provided the positive emotion that is so important to us with our ADHD brains. He has happy teachers who care about him personally, who see his potential. And that's the key. You know, if they don't see his potential, he's just not going to do well there. You know, we are so affected by positive emotion. You know, teachers who can only point out everything that a child or teen is doing wrong, frankly, they should just not be teachers. It damages our ADHD kids' self-esteem to constantly be told everything that we're doing wrong, rather than a focus more on what our strengths are, what it is that we do well. It doesn't mean that you can't point out weaknesses. You can't point out how that child could do better on this particular assignment or that particular assignment. But we always have to lead with positive emotion, and that starts with focusing on a child or an adult's strength, especially when we have ADHD, for any kid, right? For any adult, but especially when ADHD is involved. So what else did Marcus teach me? Well, what we love, we've always loved. You know, I didn't realize until Marcus was just talking here that he used music as a way to cope his freshman year of high school. And then he put it away his sophomore year because he was ambitious and he really wanted to do better. And he thought he might have another chance to really figure out the school thing. And then when he was so frustrated with school his junior year and he didn't feel like he was taken seriously, he went back to his music. He went back to what he knew. He went back to what he loved. He went back to what he was good at and he got positive emotion from. And that is exactly his music. That's what he used to get into a school he didn't think he had a shot at. He was accepted to the Tisch School of the Performing Arts at NYU using music, which is what he's always loved because that's where his brilliance lies. He couldn't compete with the ordinary, right? He couldn't compete with those students who had incredible grades or really, you know, stellar test scores or over the top extracurriculars. But where he had all of those students beat, where he could compete was hands down in music. And so it's so fascinating to me. It just kind of gives me goosebumps. You know, when people ask, where do I find my purpose? I always say, I'm trying not to cry. You don't find your purpose. You step into it. Go back to your childhood. It's always been there. So anyway, this podcast has gone on far too long. So I'm going to just end it with a rap song that Marcus wrote, performed, and audio engineered for his Tish portfolio. 
What he's doing here, it's called freestyling, and that means that there's no preparation. Nothing is written out in advance. The music just starts, and he goes with whatever is at the top of his brain, his mind, whatever, right? He does the start to finish in about an hour. That includes recording, audio engineering, everything. And this just goes to show that every ADHD brain is so different. I could never in a million years do this. It would sound so stupid. It would be so disjointed. It would not make sense. It would just be awful. But this is what Marcus does really, really well. Anyway, as Marcus mentioned, the piece is about the model minority. There is profanity. It's all about social and political justice. So if you're really conservative, turn off the podcast now. Okay? Anyway, that's what I have for you this week, and I hope you're having a wonderful holiday. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my son with you. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, they got it, Bobby. Hey. Power to the people, but we don't have no power trying to make us feel equal. One knocking down the towers, false betrayals on the news make us all seem rich when in reality, half of us don't own shit. Using manipulation to come play a trick, playing into the game like we was human joysticks. See, what you see is often not the facts, and what they tell you on the news is often all just cap. All races, but white still subhuman, unless we make them racks, and we ain't shit unless we give it back to the government that shit. Be whack. I ain't finna bite into the never ending cycle. Never show the poor or the struggling. Only the smiles, the shit be so vile. I'ma make America kiss my ass for a while. Hey, see that portrayal of that kid on the news makes him think he's not good enough cause he ain't good at school. Hey, see it's cruel. You making people think that the stereotypes are true when they really ain't got no clue. Hey, yeah, we ignorant. We don't know shit about our neighbors. We just different, man, but we still got come together because our differences make us unique and if you can't see that then the future is bleak how are we supposed to come together when the world is full of hate they gonna judge you by your race they gonna spray mace in your face and they gonna tell you to run away because you from a place where people shoot shots so that more important than getting to school or a job because you need to survive so your family can live the life but they ain't finna put that point in perspective they gonna lie they gonna say that you a statistic of the hood and that you was born to be up to no oh good so how we equal when we have different paths and how we equal when you love us when we get in cash but when we don't got the bag the government only love us when we do in tax no hey, cash like Korematsu in 1944 they still abusing the power to go and suppress our movements but they can't stop the power we have we were born to be free but haven't had it in the present or past and you know that's a fact we wasn't human then, we ain't human now And they ain't gonna change till we come and take the crown Pride to your people, never put, put your, your hand down, down. Facts